Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to episode 81 of the Young Lions Perspective. But before we get into what I want to talk about in the opening segment, today is a very special day. Because the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, the execution of excellence, the man, the hitman, Bret Hart turned 62 today. So I hope you enjoyed your Canada Day, sir. And I hope you enjoy your birthday in magnificence. Now, getting into what I wanted to talk about. Monday Night Raw. Last night, I stated that I would be watching Raw for the first time since the first official week after the Superstar Shakeup. And let's just say... The first 20 to 30 minutes of the show were spectacular. And the remainder of the 50 minutes that I... The remaining 50 minutes, I should say, that I watched Monday Night Raw were absolutely atrocious. Safe to say it was 80 minutes of my life that I could not get back. And with good reason. So, let's talk about it real quick. So, Monday Night Raw started off with... Braun Strowman and Bobby Lashley in a Falls Count Anywhere match. And I was very surprised. It didn't start with any, you know, 20-minute promo segment. It didn't start with Roman Reigns. It didn't start with Shane McMahon. It actually started with an actual match. So, out the gate, I was already thinking, man, I think Paul Heyman might have, uh, convince Vince McMahon to actually do something other than what they've been doing for status quo for so goddamn long. So, the crazy part about this, now, this match ended in a no contest when pretty much Lashley had a hit a vertical suplex on Strowman, went for the cover, got the two count. It looked like, uh, Lashley was going to go for the spear to end the match, but Strowman gets up and speared him through the LED boards on the stage. Sparks were flying, exploding. Crowd in Dallas went bananas. Crew rushed to the fire scene with, uh, to the scene with fire extinguishers. And they were, this is awesome chance. Thank you, Heyman chance. I had to literally go on Twitter to see the video because my for some reason, my cable box decided to go full retard and just want to reboot during the matchup. So I tweeted out, what the hell just happened? And then I saw the video of what happened. And I tweeted that with a comment saying, holy shit, that's what happened. So I'm already thinking, man, this is pretty fucking cool. During the whole thing, you had Corey Graves actually saying, holy shit, on TV PG programming which even then was a shock in and of itself. I was thinking, wow, they're really letting the commentators actually speak somewhat freely during Monday Night Raw. And I was excited. I was like, okay, they they may have something going here. This may set the tone for the night. So after that old spiel, um, this they uh, out came the uh, War Raiders, uh, Hanson and Raymond Rowe, for a match against the New Day. I'm thinking in my head, well, this could be a really solid match. 10, 15-minute match. You know, hopefully the War Raiders get a victory to start actually giving them some momentum and start their climb up the tag team division. 
at that point, that's where it all went to shit. Um, during the match, Samoa Joe came out, took Xavier Woods off the apron, and went for the Coquina Clutch. Referee called for the bell, giving the victory to the New Day by disqualification. Out comes Kofi Kingston to, to, for the save. And then, and then we got the inevitable six-man tag team matchup with the New Day taking on the War Raiders and Samoa Joe. Now, here's a couple things that I just wanted to put out there for this. One, why, 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 why did this have to lead to a six-man tag? You could have honestly given them a 15-minute matchup with Xavier Woods getting choked out by Samoa Joe and it either leading to a match tonight for SmackDown Live with Samoa Joe barred from ringside or you could have had Samoa Joe do the same thing to Woods which allowed the War Raiders to get a two-on-one advantage and giving them the victory thus Samoa Joe screwing over the New Day and pissing off Kofi Kingston even more. Kofi Kingston comes out. Samoa Joe could have ran into the barricade, started playing mind games with Kofi Kingston. None of that happened. Instead, Samoa Joe makes Kofi Kingston go to sleep and having him tap out. Well, not even tapping out. He went, he passed out from the Coquina Clutch. You have your WWE champion losing in the decision of this matchup. Two weeks before Extreme Rules, which pretty much tells me and should pretty much tell all of you, because over on this side of the world, when it comes to wrestling, we have common sense, logic, and rational thought that Samoa Joe more than likely is not going to defeat Kofi Kingston to become the new WWE champion. Again, we have a Raw superstar facing a SmackDown superstar for the WWE Championship when there's a bevy of talent over on SmackDown that could be facing Kofi Kingston for the championship. You have, of course, the matchup we I've been wanting to see for a while, Randy Orton versus Kofi Kingston. That match actually would have made sense going back to their Elimination Chamber, uh, going back to actually their rivalry back in 2011, 2011-2012, uh, when Kofi Kingston was screwing, was fucking with Legacy. And him messing up uh, Randy Orton's car. Then Kofi Kingston, of course, getting some sort of revenge on Randy Orton to during the Elimination Chamber match. And then starting a feud for the WWE Championship at Extreme Rules, which really could have been a dope match. The rumor of a ladder match, really, really good, I could care less about because we all know Kofi Kingston is going to more than likely win this championship match anyway. So, like I said prior, you could have just had Samoa Joe cause the disqualification or cause the cause him actually have him use the cookie clutch on Xavier Woods. Like I said, in a two on having a two on one situation, Biggie doesn't rec- realize it, and him getting one over on Kofi and the New Day. That was all all kinds of logic gaps in and of itself. The fact that you have your WWE champion losing on weekly tele, you know, 
weekly episodic programming is just an ass backwards idea. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, understand, I understand, you know, it's like a two, three week build, but there's just so many logic gaps in and of itself within those two segments. We then had Drake Maverick bringing his wife, Renee Michelle to Raw, even though they were supposed to be on their honeymoon. And Drake Maverick, you know, still obsessing over the 24-7 championship. Renee Michelle having to make him choose. Either her or the 24-7 championship. And of course, he states, you know, I'll always choose you. You're my wife. A hug. And Truth comes in. Saying, don't mind me at all, dog. I'm a sucker for romance. We see the club backstage with AJ Styles, you know, saying it's not on not on them because they lost the War Raiders last week. Even though AJ Styles saying admitting they were on fire, but they still lost. And of course, Luke Gal stating, you know, they're you know the War Raiders are legit, but we already knew that given their time in NXT. So, they, and then Carl Anderson makes the case that, you know, you barely beat Ricochet last week in his first match back. Styles saying that he always gives 100%, and Ricochet still almost got him. But Carl Anderson replied that he still almost got him. But since Styles did win, he'll be more than likely beginning at the United States Championship match in Extreme Rules against Ricochet. So, Luke Gallows tells AJ, well, they made a little side bet within that match that AJ Styles can't beat Ricochet. And he even put his hot Asian wife on the line. That apparently was the bet. That was just weird in and of itself. I I mean, why have this type of script between the club you know why would you want to put your hot Asian wife on the line and I've seen her I've seen his Instagram she's a very good looking woman don't get me wrong but there was no need to throw that in there whatsoever it really it really didn't make any damn sense what also didn't make any damn sense was having Cesaro versus No Way Jose Cesaro gets the jobber entrance he was already in the ring waiting for No Way Jose to come out but the main reason they did this was because R-Truth was part of the uh, conga line pretty much trolling Drake Maverick you know he's dancing on the on the outside doing whatever dancing with his wife her name is Michelle he then goes up, lays on the barricade, trolling Drake Maverick and begging him to pin him. In which Renee Michelle looks at him as, you know, what are you doing? Don't why why are you trying to obsess over the championship? Then they sit back down, Truth moves on, and then all of the remaining rest of the catering club on Monday Night Raw, such as Alexander and Titus O'Neill, leading the charge. Our Truth gets the hell out of Dodge. And goes back into the backstage area. 
Cesaro then attacks Jose from behind, beats him down for about a minute, hits the neutralizer, and that literally was the end of that segment, which basically didn't make any lick of goddamn sense. Now, at the start of the show, I think someone actually got fired after the show because they initially showed the Street Profits. That's right. Your current reigning and defending NXT Tag Team Champions unfortunately made their main roster debut on a nothing episode of Monday Night Raw. There was no reasoning behind it. There was no video package for them to hype them up before they made their debut. Nothing like that. The promo itself was trash. I personally believe that they, that was just... It didn't make any sort of sense whatsoever for them to even be on the show. It didn't make any sense for them to any sense whatsoever it was just so terrible I mean they had Montez Ford doing you know his rock deal and of course Angela Dawkins you know didn't wasn't having any of that you know after their introduction they said they're missing something some flavor they're here. They said they're here for a special reason. And they said they're bringing the swag back to Raw. And the titles that they have don't stop them from having smoke. Channing, we want the smoke. This didn't make any sort of sense. At all. It really didn't. Because why are you having your, your current reigning and defending NXT Tag Team Champions on Raw. I'd love to know why. I really don't honestly get the concept of this at all. I don't. They they really... I mean... The wildcard rules already fucked up everything in terms of the brand split for Raw and SmackDown. But now you're just bringing up NXT talent to just bring up NXT talent. If someone can explain to me why it made sense for them to actually be there last night, I would love to know because honestly, I didn't, I couldn't give a fuck at all about this we then had The Miz doing a backstage interview with Charlie Caruso Talk, and then of course we found out a little earlier that he was going to face Elias once again in a 2 out of 3 falls match I 
I honestly don't get it anymore. The two out of three falls match is now the new gauntlet match. And since they do these two out of three falls matches literally on a weekly basis now, the further they'll do the first fall quickly, and then they'll go to commercial and they'll do nothing for the entirety of the commercial. There have been reports stating that, you know, Vince McMahon wants this so that way, you know, they can just get through their commercials, do nothing, do absolutely jack shit. Or if, I mean, for those who are live in the, who are there in the arena, as this is going on, I can only imagine what Dallas was going through. I can only imagine what Dallas had to deal with in terms of this. Because to me, it didn't make any damn sense. We then had Shane McMahon and Drew McIntyre on Raw. Oh, by the way, and the Miz promo, I didn't really give it much about. I was literally on my phone on Twitter, just reading through Twitter comments and, you know, tweets and just laughing my ass off at those more so than I cared about fucking Raw. We then had Shane McMahon and Drew McIntyre back on Raw. As if this was going to make anything better. Of course, he gets his proper introduction for being the best in the world. And may I say, Greg Hamilton actually does it better than Mike Rome. So, Mike Rome needs to stop doing it and let Greg Hamilton be on the show on Raw and SmackDown anytime Shane McMahon is going to be on the show. Shane wants fans to know that he's been keeping tabs on the well-being of both Strowman and Lashley after their incident, and he doesn't just come here to grace us with his presence. He begins to address last week, calling it the perfect setup to end Roman Reigns. He said Roman was shaking in his boots, facing those two because he had no chance of winning. He then entertains himself with the footage of last week, in which he and McIntyre brutalized Roman in their 2-1-1 handicap match. McIntyre states that this, the footage speaks for itself. And that's what's going to happen Extreme Rules, to which he states, Roman only delayed the inevitable. Shane addresses the, wants to address the person Roman begged to help him, The Undertaker. He said, he said those two, these two have, have gone to battle and will do it again. He looks forward to it. He said, take a surprise them and Shane will give him that, but there won't be any surprises at Extreme Rules when Shane and McIntyre put them in the ground. McIntyre states that Taker's the greatest legend in all of WWE, having gone through generation of generation, striking fear into the hearts of every man he's ever faced. But he is no ordinary man, saying, and I quote, I am a hybrid of every generation, and I am not afraid of The Undertaker. Of course, there was a rumor that Undertaker was here, and he's dressed to fight. Fans start chanting for The Undertaker as McIntyre dared him to show himself so that he and Shane can tell him they are going to exterminate his legacy. Think it, of course, the thunderclaps, the lights starting flickering, and you, of course, hear the gong. Out comes the Undertaker. Taker comes closer. Shane and Drew McIntyre get out of the ring. They go over the barriers to get far away from Undertaker, with McIntyre just glaring at the phenom. Taker grabs the mic and says, and I quote, Roman Reigns never asked me for my help. That's not who he is. But if you need answers to the why, let me explain I am, quote, he tells Shane that he is and always has, has always been the reaper of wayward souls, and he's here to collect on theirs. He said Shane had a little of Taker's respect for a while. They're held in the cell match at WrestleMania. Shane gave it his all. He lived to tell the tale. 
But then, like most mortals, Shane fell victim to his own greedy ego, saying then, to end his promo, and I quote, You may be the best in this world, but where I'm sending you to, you'll be nothing more than another couple of lost souls suffering the torment and torture, and the torture of the acrid stench of death that will be for all eternity, and they will never rest in peace. It was at that point to which I honestly gave up on the show and changed it over to the ESPN channel. I wish it was the Ojo, but it wasn't. Ladies and gentlemen, again, I lost 80 minutes of my existence watching this product. Now, I understand, you know, Heyman is the executive director of Monday Night Raw. But for that 20 to 30 minutes in the beginning of the show, I think that was all Paul Heyman. And the remainder of my time watching the show was all Vince McMahon. Remember, when I, I post, put a post on Instagram um, with cult, with a screenshot of Cultaholic, of course, breaking the news that Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff would be the executive directors, executive directors for Raw and SmackDown, respectively. I said, before you begin your parade, remember that they still have the answer to Vincent Kennedy McMahon. I should have never broken my streak of not watching Raw. You can say it was a good show all you want, but you are in the wrong position. You are in the minority. You should be in the minority. But there is a majority, but they are unfortunately in the majority. And WWE is in a sad state of affairs right now. I mean, we granted we have the go home show next week for Monday Night Raw, and then we have Extreme Fools. You heard me right, Extreme Fools. It didn't look as if Paul Heyman was really doing anything of executive directing on that show, now was he? That was probably the I've like I said, I have not watched Raw since the first week after the Superstar Shaker. Actually, no, the first week of the super the week of the Superstar Shaker, I should say. I watched the first week after, and it was a joke. Ever since then, I had not watched the show and found better uses for my Monday nights. I will go back to spending my nights doing other things other than watching Monday Night Raw. It was a shit show. A glorified, unadulterated shit show. I cannot wait to see what the ratings are for this week's Raw. I'm not saying it'll break their 2.13 record for worst rating ever in the history of the programming. But it should be close. I would have, if, if, if. I mean, granted, yes, Strowman and Lashley hooked you in for at least another, at least another two segments. But after the inevitable six man tag, I should have literally. Change the channel. Literally, should have changed it. 
I wanted to see if they can get out of the first hour alive. Unfortunately, they couldn't. There's a reason fans are not watching main roster programming anymore. Or actually, they are. They're just fucking stupid. Monday Night Raw sucks. Completely. With the... I'm going to keep sounding like a broken record. With the talent that you have on just Raw alone, the storylines that you could be doing for the entire brand as a whole should be destroying any hopes of AEW getting more traction than they are. That's, that's God's honest truth. That is undisputed. When, and of course, I, I you know, spent the rest of the night you know, just checking out, doing my notes for uh, today's episode and checking Twitter to see if there was any inkling of a, of a bounce back for the remainder of the show, to which I kept seeing complaints from people complaining about the show, how shitty this segment was, how crappy this segment was, including one particular segment of the show in which Mike and Maria Kanellis made their Raw debut and having a mixed tag team match with Becky Lynch and Seth Rollins. Boy, was that awkward. For the simple fact that Becky was going to go after Maria and then all of a sudden Maria grabs the mic and tells Becky Lynch and the entire rest of the world that she's pregnant. I'm not sure if that's just kayfabe or if it's just a super weird flex or if that's actually legitimate. But that allowed her to not be involved with the match or get the smoke from Becky Lynch. So, pretty much, Mike Kanellis proceeded to get his ass handed to him by Seth Rollins. They lose, of course, and then Maria grabs the microphone and pretty much berates Mike Kanellis. Pretty much, let me see if I can find it on my tablet. Because I, I thought this was fucking hilarious. Let me see if I can go here. I know, bad bad podcasting, but this is going to be good. Because what she, like, what she had honestly said to Mike was fucking... Was just absolutely just some, some straight up cuckery. Straight up cuckery. Let me get to that. There we go. So after the after Lynch actually made Mike tap, which was that's embarrassing in and of itself. <sighs> Mike Maria grabs the microphone and says that she can't believe Mike is the father of her children. She has waited for him to grow up and take responsibility in his career, but no, he's just a disappointment. The only man in the ring was Becky. So maybe next time, Maria will just ask Becky to give her a baby. They literally signed a five-year contract for Vince McMahon to book them to have Maria berate Mike Kanellis and make him look like an absolute cuck. 
I'm gonna say that one more fucking time for the people in the back in just case you, you missed that part because you had to do something real fast. They signed a five-year contract for Vince McMahon to book them to have Maria grab the microphone and berate him and make him look like a cuck on live national cable television. Is this what we're doing in 2019? When we found out that Mike and Maria Canellis were signing a five-year deal, I literally laughed out loud. I was in the gym, working out, getting my soul on, and I was reading this news. And thank God no one was actually in the gym that I go to, because it's just a little apartment gym in my complex. I laughed my ass off for literally two minutes. I fell to the floor laughing. At the fact that after the entire spiel of Mike and Maria wanting to leave, wanting to get out of their contracts, they signed a five-year deal anyway. How does it feel, Mike and Maria, knowing that Vince McMahon is going to make your husband, Maria more so, this is actually for Maria, how does it feel knowing that for the next five years, your careers are going to be irrelevant as fuck. And that he's booking your husband to look like a cuck on national television. If that's what, if that, if you're okay with that for the next five years, I understand you have a child together. You're married. It's very, you know, the, the money is there. You guys will be taken care of. Both of you will be both of you will have no problem keeping your finances in order. Make sure your child has a wonderful life. But at what expense? What at what expense to your psyche? Hell, even the the segment before that. With Becky and Seth talking to Charlie Caruso, talking about the mixed tag team match for the Universal and Raw Women's Championship, they made them look super awkward. They look super awkward. I looked back at it last night. I watched that segment on Twitter. That was very awkward. I understand their relationship and they're living together. Not that I endorse that, but hey, it bees what it bees. They make their choices. You got you got dough. Just make sure it's split it, make sure bills are split in half. But even then they made them look awkward. I could go on and on. But the fact of the matter is this. I come back from two months. And Raw ain't changed one fucking bit. Now, I'm not going to make you choose to not watch Raw. That's not what I do here. That's not what we do here. You have, you're a human being. You, I'm not going to try to make you, I'm not going to pour my, you know, 
not say not ideologies per se. I'm not going to, you know, push what I believe onto you. You make your own decisions. You're your own person. And the only thing is I say, don't do anything stupid. Don't do any, do, do what you got to do within the confines of the law. And don't commit felonies unless you want to go to jail and be in the same jail cell as Tyrone, uh, the big jack dude. And I promise you, it ain't going to be pretty for you, bro. But Raw has not changed one bit. It has only gotten worse. And again, I say, I cannot wait for this week's ratings. You know how big I am on the Raw and SmackDown ratings for the week. It is a reflection of how poor this show is. I read on Twitter that they, it may take a couple weeks before Paul Heyman, actually, Paul Heyman's influence actually takes over on Raw. My thing is this. When you put someone in a position and have them start immediately, their influence should immediately be felt on the show itself, not just for a half an hour. Their influence should be felt throughout the entire show. And for those who actually said it was a good show, to the WWE apologists out there who still think they're getting eights and nines on a show, I've seen it on Instagram. I know who I follow. I've seen it. I've shaken my head. Tell me what really were the high points of this show. On Twitter, at Sway Senator WWY. And if you're listening to this and you have a friend who actually is a WWE apologist, I ask of you to talk to get them to hit me up on Twitter so we can hash this out. Because I really want to know how you thought that last night was actually a good show. Because I didn't. For the hour and 20 minutes I spent trying to force myself to watch this show. I couldn't take it any longer. People, it's getting to a point where I may just not watch main roster programming at all until it gets better and spend my Mondays and Tuesdays actually doing things I enjoy. Working on notes for the podcast, you know, working on studies, future things planning my workouts for the week cooking for the next couple of days so I have lunch and stuff for work I would literally rather do that than watch Monday Night Raw and Smackdown Live and it's a shame that even with the with the hiring of Heyman on Monday Night Raw as the executive director Vince McMahon's influence still reigns over the red brand. This is episode 81 of the Young Lions Perspective. And with that being said, let us begin. Guys, Zach from the Wrestling Issues Podcast here, and welcome to episode 81 of the Young Lions Perspective. So glad to have you guys here with me on this lovely Tuesday morning. And I hope you guys are enjoying your day, your night, your afternoon, and your evening, wherever you may be, wherever you are in the 
world. Thank you guys so much for checking out this episode of the podcast. And as always, I greatly and truly appreciate it. Now, if, for those of you who don't know or have been living under a rock for the past week or so, I finally put out my episode where I interviewed author Sonny Arvado talking about his book, Instagods, that just came out yesterday. I encourage all of you to check out that episode. That was a fun interview to do, one of my favorite things to do on the show so far, and I was very happy with how it turned out. Um, Really, really happy with how it turned out, man. It's really cool to see, you know, at least, you know, some of y'all actually, you know, checking it out. Um, Please tell a friend to tell a friend about this episode. And let them know that, you know, you know, Zach's got this interview going with Sonny Arvado. It's a really good interview. You know, definitely get the word out about this interview, man. It was really fun to do, and I could not be happier with how it turned out. So if you want to check that out, please do so. Um, definitely show the episode some love, man. And tell a friend, tell a friend about this episode. It's, it was really fun to do. AEW Fighter Fest. The good... The bad and the ugly. Before we get started, I want to say that, of course, Fighter Fest was not, was pretty much a B-level pay-per-view. It had its moments. It definitely had its moments to shine, but it also had its low points. Um, and we'll get into all that a little bit later on. For the most part... AEW Fighter Fest was a fun, sh- was good to watch. It was really interesting to see, you know, different names, different talent, you know, get their shot in the match, in the matches that we they had. But there were some points in the program where I was just scratching my head or literally just looking down in disgust. And like I said, we'll get into all that a little bit later. But we got to get into the good. That was AEW Fighter Fest. I did all my notes yesterday. I have it all written down here. I'm looking at it. And let's start off with, uh, we always start off with the beginning of the show, because without beginning, honestly, there's no story to tell. AEW's tag team division isn't just the Young Bucks and the Lucha Bros, because they have the one thing WWE doesn't have right now with their divisions. The one thing they don't have is depth. You got not just the Young Bucks and the Lucha Bros, but you also have the best friends. You also have the Dark Order. You also have um, the Private Party, and we'll talk about them in a second. SCU and Helico and Jack Evans, if they decide to um, get signed. You have what I'm hoping is uh, Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, um, a boy and his dinosaur, uh, as a tag team uh, in the tag team division. LAX. I know their contract is up with Impact in August. Um, who knows who the speculation they're going to be. I know the the Good Brothers, Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows, their contract is up in September, and they have chosen not to re-sign. So who knows where they may go. They may go back to uh, New Japan. They may go to AEW. Who knows where they'll go. But they're adding to their depth, and that's always a good thing. I always... I'm a big y'all know I'm a big fan of the tag team of tag team wrestling. I've always been a tag team wrestling fan for the longest time, ever since I can remember when I was a kid. And I like this division they have right now, and I have the possibility, you know, seeing that they have the opportunity to build on that tag team division, especially if like LAX, Gallows and Anderson sh- start showing up, 
if Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus become an actual thing in the tag team division, that's I, I think they'll be pretty fucking cool. Um, depth is important because not only can you have your top feud for a tag team championship, but you can then have secondary feuds to build a top contender to be next in line for said tag team championship. The tag team match itself, the triple threat tag match was fucking awesome. I really thought it was really fucking good. A great way to start the show. Um, but we'll, when we get into talking about the main card on the bad, you'll understand why I believe this match should have been on the main card as opposed to another match that we'll get into. This tag team match really showed, they showed themselves off. All six men did their fucking job. And two people in particular had what I felt was their true coming out party. And that was the private party, the team of Mark Quinn and Isaiah Cassidy. For those who don't know, they were a huge staple on House of Glory Wrestling. That's when I first found them. Um... I heard of House of Glory Wrestling through JD from NY206, who's an actual actual commentator on there. He's a, for those who don't know, he's a prominent YouTuber in the wrestling IWC. Uh, he gets a lot of shit for what he says, but he always keeps it 100 with everything that he states, even if it's, you know, the negative. And sometimes you got to keep, you got you to gotta criticize the form. And he criticizes the form when they actually deserve it. If it's good, it's good. If it's not, he'll tell you. I'm the same way. And, you know, that's when I heard, that's when, you know, I started getting the House of Glory. That's when I met uh, Nick Nightmare from the Sledgehammer TV uh, podcast on Twitter. He's a real cool dude as well. He's a huge fan of House of Glory. And he's also training at House of Glory as well, which is, I think is a cool thing. And I support that movement as well. Um, these two are amazing. And if you watch the triple threat tag match at on Fighter Fest on Saturday night, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These two are going to be wonderful names, and they're going to become household names in the tag team division once they start getting weekly programming in, in October. Really, really cool to see them have a coming out party. No pun intended, of course. Of course, the best friends got the victory and move on to all out to fight for a first round bye in the AEW Tag Team Championship Tournament. After the victory, the Dark Order come out. Well, they don't come out, but they have like a video package talking about, you know, how they were going to be their first victims and they were going to be the ones they're going to go after. Then the lights went out. Then... Their minions surround the ring. After that, the lights go out again and the minions are gone. So they have some sort of, I guess, higher power. And I'm doing, um, in a sense, I'm doing air quotes for that. But my third point was that they are doing the slow burn on the Dark Order. I'm all for it. Because you're going to need heel tag teams. In any promotion, you'll need a solid, strong heel tag team. And I think the Dark Order could be that tag team. I know a lot of people really aren't fond of the Dark Order as of right now because we don't know much about them. But I know over time, 
they are going to have the Dark Order really come out to play. And I hope they start having them come out to play more so and have them be more prominent as we lead into All Out at the end of August. Which will be cool. I like what they did here with the tag team matchup. Everyone, every team had a moment to shine. Every person in that match had a moment to shine. And that's why I think right now, depth is a big factor in the tag team division. Going back to our first point. Very impressed with what they have so far. And I hope they actually build upon that going forward. Because they already stated they want to make tag team wrestling relevant in AEW. And I have no problem supporting that movement. The commentary team was much better than they were during Double or Nothing. And that's always a good thing. You know, with Double or Nothing, back last, uh, back to the end end of May during Memorial Day weekend, it was good, but I knew there were some flubs and all that stuff. And they knew they were going to build upon that. Jim Ross knew that. He's even stated it in interviews. They know they're going to get better. They were fantastic on Saturday night. I felt they this, this is their best so far. They did very well. Excalibur, Jim Ross, and Golden Boy are a great three-man team. Um, if, they go, if they go as a duo with Jim Ross and Excalibur, I think those two can definitely play off each other very, very well. Um, I enjoyed all three of them. There, there wasn't a point where... I was listening to the commentary. I was like, what the fuck did you just say? As I usually do during uh, main roster programming for WWE. Um, It was really solid throughout the entire show. There wasn't at any point where I was scratching my head or um, heard anything weird or anything like that. It was very, very solid. It was very, very well done. All three of them, like I said, played off each other very well. And I couldn't be happier with how they performed on Saturday night because the commentary team has to tell the story. And Jim Ross was a lot better than he was at Double or Nothing. Like I said, it's your first go. Some mistakes are going to be made. But when you have, but you know, they made a solid impression the first time around. But the second time, they did wonderful. It was, it was a wonderful way for them to do what they did. I was very impressed by the commentary team and that and they and that helped the show leaps in back it, it definitely helped them out big time to have the commentary team be on point as they were on Saturday night. Another big thing that I really liked every single person who was going to be on the fight for the fallen card actually won their matches at Fighter Fest. This is why I say this. Look at the champions that you have in WWE at this very moment. They have their champions losing on their mat, on their TV, on their episodic programming. Every week. More recently, Kofi Kingston got put to sleep by Samoa Joe. Why are you having your champions losing ever? Every once in a while, on occasion, that's fine. But when you're a champion, you should be booked to be strong as fuck. And in defeat, 
be booked the same exact way. I think, what was it, Allie? When she faced Leva Bates, she won her match. Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, they won their match. Eggman Page won the Fatal 4-Way. And now he's going to face Kip Sabian. Kenny Omega pinned, I believe, um, I think it was uh, Laredo Kid. He's going on to face Sema at Fight for the Fallen. Every single person won who, who was supposed to be in the Fight for the Fallen. Minus Cody Rhodes won their matches leading into the next card. And that's what you're supposed to do. Build momentum for your top contenders or your top guys and make them look strong doing so. That plays into everything. So that when they do lose, it's a shock victory and it actually helps build contenders. That's how you build a top contender. It's very, very logical, and it's very easy to do. Make your top talent look strong every single week. When they have a match, they win. They can't. They always have a, a good streak going, and then somehow, some way, in a random match, they get pinned, or a top contender is, you know, racks up a ton of victories, and they earn their shot based off that merit alone. I like the fact that, you know, people who were supposed to win won. I appreciate that. Give them some momentum going forward to the next show, to the next episode, all of it. Because what you're doing with your champions on WWE, they just look terrible. I mean, yes, they're, you've got your champions. But a Seth Rollins shouldn't be losing. A Becky Lynch and a Bailey shouldn't be losing. Your, your mid-card champion should not be losing. Ricochet should have never lost the night after stopping grounds to AJ Styles. I understand that it builds it builds to an AJ Styles-Ricochet match, but AJ Styles just came back. Have Ricochet beat AJ and have both men look strong in victory and in defeat. It's not complicated to do so. The Fatal 4-Way match was one of the best matches on the card. But what made this entire match, the promo that MJF cut before the match stole the damn show. If y'all watched Fighter Fest on Saturday, as it was free on BR Live, and I still believe it is free, and you can go back and watch that right now if you want to, go listen to that Maxwell J. Friedman promo. Not only listen to that promo, but then listen to his promo at the press conference after the show. This man, and I even stated on Twitter, is a natural heel. He's a natural. This man can cut promos as if it was his day job. And he is going to be a solid piece in AEW going forward into 2020. The match itself was great. I enjoyed it for the most part. Yes, there were a little, there's a, but one or two things. One thing that I didn't like 
lot of the match, and we'll get that when we get into the bad that was AEW Fighter Fest. But MJF honestly stole the fucking show when he stated, I'm going to try to remember this like off the top of my head. For those of you who live, for all you gamers that live in your mother's basement, yes, she swallows. And then they pan right to this one dude just looking at him like, yo, why you be, yo, why you putting my mom's business out on Front Street like that? <laughs> like, what the, like, oh, like, and then, because at the press conference, he was asked, you know, he was asked about the promo, you know, stating, you know, the, you know, your mom, she swallows line. And, you know, talking about crossing the line. And MJF even stated to the person asking him, he's like, I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want. And I think with the method that AEW has, the old school method of, you know, getting over on your own, you know, developing your character for yourself and getting yourself over it. Of course, there's bullet points you have to hit, but he he knocked it out of the fucking park with this promo. He knocked it out of the fucking park. He had a, actually a good performance in the match. I think all four, all four participants had a great performance in this match, and it was definitely one of the best matches on the fucking card. Leading right into the next point, and I state this. If Hangman Page wins the AEW World title at All Out, there is no other person on that roster than MJF to be his first opponent for the title. Now, there's one other point that I didn't write down, but... I believe now we're starting to see feuds being formed, not only just for AEW TV programming, but for All Out as well. I'll get into one of them a little bit later on. But I think that if MJF, if not MJF, if Hangman Page beats Chris Jericho and becomes the AEW World Champion, MJF, without a shadow of a doubt, should be his first legitimate feud for the title without question these two have been at uh, double or nothing mjf went at hangman page asking him to you know drop his number one contendership or his spot in the AEW world championship match and give it to him because he believes he is better than hangman page hangman page won the fatal four-way match this feud has so much to offer. Literally, this is one of your big. This is this could be one of your biggest feuds for the remainder of 2019. You can easily build off all of this easily without question. You can build off of this. If Hangman Page is to win the world title, and I'm not making like I said, I'm not going to make any picks about it until the week of probably the Monday and Tuesday before. Or Tuesday before the biggest uh, professional wrestling uh, day of the year. This feud is going to be fucking money. You don't mean to tell me that if you didn't watch, if you watched Fighter Fest on Saturday night, you didn't see, you didn't think for two seconds, for at least five seconds, five to ten, maybe fifteen seconds, MJF and Heyman Page couldn't go for that world title going into. Weekly programming in October. Because that, I think, would be absolutely amazing. And if you think I'm lying, man, tell me why. I'm gonna, you, think of, you think of your argument while I sip this coffee real quick. 
Darby Allen became a household name after his match went to a time limit draw against Cody Rhodes. I had never, I've heard of Darby Allen before. I know he he goes goes with um, Priscilla Kelly on the Indies. They are a couple. Um, but I never really had seen Darby Allen in action. I know he's a he was a, he was a prominent name in Evolve before he uh, became elite. And I was thoroughly impressed by his performance against Cody Rhodes. He he hung with him for the entire twenty minutes of that match. They he hung with him completely. I was shocked that it went to a time limit draw. But with that. You know, they really made Darby Allen look like a million bucks on Saturday night. Even when Cody hit crossroads multiple times, our Allen kicked out. He put Allen in the body bag that he had for Cody. Rhodes did. Hit him with the disaster kick, unzipped it, went for the pin, and he still kicked out. The crowd in Florida was going bananas for this match. When it came to an, the one part, the one, oh my, and this ma- this part in this match, I will never forget. The man did a trust fall while Cody was on the apron on the outside, did a trust fall. Cody moves out of the way and he hits back first onto the hardest part of the ring and still kept fighting. That makes you a house, that alone makes you a household name because nobody forgot about that spot. I love that spot. That spot was absolutely fucking insane. Now we know who Darby Allen is. At least for one night, we knew we knew who Darby Allen is. I was impressed by this dude. This dude has some skills. Whatever he's learned over the past few years, man, he showed his ass off. On Saturday night, man, I was thoroughly impressed by this man, and he was definitely in my—he's definitely in my conversation for MVP of Fighter Fest, without fucking question. It was great. He had a great performance, and I was wonderfully happy with how it came out. The chair shot that Cody Rhodes received from Sean Spears was fucking beautiful, for one simple reason. Shock value. Now, I know that Cody had stated, you know, there's no shock value in professional wrestling. There is, dude. Because when you took that shot right across your head, and then you were bleeding out of the back of your head, and you had to receive 12 stitches because of it, that in and of itself itself was shock value. I know unprotected chair shots are very taboo nowadays. And good on Jim Ross for bringing up the whole CTE issue for, you know, because I know it's a big thing in uh, professional football and uh, the NFL with concussion protocols. And now that's being a very prominent thing in the league. Um, I know Junior Seau had uh, CTE and he committed suicide, which is an unfortunate thing. But I was very, I was fine with how this result came out. With Sean Spears going after Cody Rhodes, I'm sure he took. I'm sure in his character, he took offense to what Cody said about him in the lead in the lead up to Fighter Fest. After uh, he they made the official signing for Sean Spears, calling him a great hand, 
I'm sure he took offense to that. And if there was a promo. I'm going to tell you right now, if this match doesn't happen at all out with Cody versus Sean, they're missing a great opportunity to make this shit go down. Cody versus Sean Spears has to happen at all out. I already know Cody is pretty much committed to teaming up with his brother to face the Young Bucks, but it all out, it has to be Cody Rhodes versus Sean Spears without question. Just based off of that chair shot alone, then almost going after Brandy, and luckily Aubrey Edwards is there to stop him. But that has to be a match at all out. And y'all know I'm going to be willing to pay $50, $50 to watch that match. Because this match now, you now, and that's, and that's the good thing, and that's the thing about what they're doing right now. They're, add, they're giving you storylines within the show in and of itself. Hangman Page and MJF. You know, Kenny Omega, John Moxley uh, at the end of the show, at the end of um, the show on Saturday night. That's going to be leading into All Out. Now you got Cody Rhodes and Sean Spears for All Out. That's got to be a match, dude. Without question, that has to be one of your matches for the card. Because that car, that match alone can definitely steal the show. And it will be Sean Spears coming out party as a man now in another promotion other than WWE. Everything about the six-man tag team match between the Elite, the Lucha Bros, and Loretta Kid was on point from beginning to end. Earlier in the evening... Um, I think the whole point of Fighter Fest, like the the side story, was that you know Fighter Fest was going to give the elite the the VIP experience, a luxury room, a beautiful spread for food, all this shit, a pool, a dope ass pool. They got a kiddie pool, cheese sandwiches, and um, they lost their backs. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious, and. Man, when they came out, the the freaking Young Bucks came out as Ryu and Ken from Street Fighter. Some random jabron came out and just started doing some Batista shit. The lights went dark, and then out came Kenny Omega doing some Street Fighter shit and came out as Akuma, the demon. From Street Fighter. And I love Akuma. I want the Akuma beads so fucking bad. It was so fucking good. So good. The presentation on that alone made the crowd in Florida pop for that moment. For just that moment alone. The match itself was fantastic. Laredo Kid, I had never heard of him before. It was. I mean, we all know it's supposed to be Pac and the Lucha Bros, but of course we all know the situation that happened with Double or Nothing. But the match was just fucking great. Um, none of the chemistry was so good. Of course, given the fact that the Young Bucks and the Lucha Bros have faced each other so many times, uh, Kenny and Pentagon had. Like, there were so many stories that were intertwined into one match that it made the match look fucking fantastic. From beginning to end, everything about it was just so good. The chem, like I said, the chemistry was there. Laredo Kid had a great performance, much like Bandito did it all in last year. Um, he wasn't the MVP, of course, but it was very well done. Um, they they put on a solid performance, and the crowd went bananas for everything. 
every fucking thing. Just, you know, the brawl they had. Uh, Pentagon, of course, you know, doing his Sierra Miero and pie-facing uh, Kenny. That was fucking... That was a great moment. Just, just from beginning to end, this match was just so fucking great. So many moments in that match, I can't even think of them all right now. That's how good this was. And... I know the Lucha Bros going forward will be prominent on AEW. Um, I know they're just finishing up, you know, they're still doing their obligations in AAA. I don't know if they're still going to be part, part of AAA going forward. I know they won back the tag team titles, as far as I know, or they may have lost them. Who knows, but I have to check on that. But this match was so fucking fantastic. And it definitely was easily in the running for my match of the night. Without question, in the running for match of the night for me. The last point I want to make for the good that was AEW Fighter Fest, John Moxley and Joey Janela's unsanctioned match will easily put the entire Extreme Rules card to fucking shame. The presentation of this was fucking fantastic. Justin Roberts was in the ring, pretty much stating to the crowd that the six-man tag team match between the Elite taking on the Lucha Bros and the Laredo Kid was the main event of the car. And that this is not even a sanctioned match. They're going to turn the lights off, and when they come back on, the unsanctioned match will start. That was wonderful. That was fantastic. I like that. I like the way they started that off. Just letting the crowd know that was your main event of the evening, but this match isn't. This is just, this is not even sanctioned by AEW. This is just a fight. And when the lights come back on, we're going to get it. These two men put their bodies on the line for this. This, There was no titles. It's just two men during their promos who pretty much were going, due to to the severity of their promos, AEW could not have this just be a regular one-on-one match. They made it unsanctioned, which pretty much means they're going to do whatever the fuck they want. And, and AEW is not going to be held liable for what they do to each other. It was the perfect stipulation. It was the perfect call by AEW. They did it the right timing days before the, the uh, event took off. It was well fucking done from beginning to end. The ladder, the jump off the ladder by Joey Janela, off that, going through, putting uh, Moxley through the table. The barbed wire steel chair wrapped around with the napkins wrapped around it because Ambrose was bleeding. Oh, not Ambrose. I'm sorry. I had to hit myself there. Moxley was bleeding due to wrapping around, you know, wrapping that barbed wire around it, the barbed wire tables, the prosthetic leg shot. Fan, like I literally saw a tweet Where there's a fan who was in the same row as the person with the prosthetic leg. He said, "He said, give him this." They in the tweet. They said, "Give, take, give him this leg." He gave it to Mox. She gave it to Moxley, and he used it on Janela and gave it right back. I thought that was fucking cool. I'm gonna take some of my coffee because was, was. I'm gonna think about that moment real quick. That was such a good moment. Mm, get back into swing things. Um, this, I, when I, when I say this, this easily puts the entire Extreme Rules card to fucking shame, I fucking mean it. 
you can do all the ladder matches. You can do all the extreme rules matches with Becky Lynch and uh, Seth Rollins versus Baron Corbin. Uh, hold on, let me say it right. Everyone's favorite TGI Fridays GM Baron Corbin. You can do all that. All of it. I could care less. But this match, one match put an in, will put an entire card to shame. When we, go, when we get to extreme rules on the 14th, and by the way, Fight for the Fallen is actually on the 13th, so we can compare both. This match was awesome. It wasn't the best match on the card by any means. But this shows that, you know, when you really want to put out some violence, Moxley and Janela did their fucking job and hit their fucking numbers. The thumbtacks was was really fucking cool. The, the just the little details that he t- Moxley took off Janela's shoes, his boots prior to you know just atomic dropping, not atomic dropping. Yeah, it might as well be. I think it's an atomic drop. His, he took his and then slammed his feet onto the thumbtacks, and then hit you know the DDT on him onto the thumbtacks, and then Moxley spitting out a thumbtack. Attention to detail. The barbed wire tables, the uh, running uh, Death Valley driver onto the table. It was a great back and forth matchup. It wasn't as if, you know, Moxley dominated. Janela got in his moments as well. You know, and it was such a great matchup. And it was so gritty and bloody and nasty and a wonderful unsanctioned match. It harkens back to. Triple H, uh, I mean, I'm not comparing it to, but it kind of gives me those Triple H, Shawn Michaels unsanctioned match vibes. You know, where it got, to, where it got so severe to the point where WWE could not be held liable for what they were going to do to each other. And they made it an unsanctioned match. Same thing with NXT. Johnny Gargano was fired from the company. From the brand, I should say. And in order to win his match back, he had to fight an unsanctioned match with Tommaso Ciampa and won his job back. But NXT wasn't held liable for what they were going to do to each other because it was that severe of a matchup. That's what, that's what this match was. It was the, the promos were so severe and they were going to take it to such a point AEW wasn't going to be held responsible for what they do to each other. But it was well done. It was well orchestrated. And a solid. And what happened after that with Omega attacking Moxley was a perfect way to end Fighter Fest because Moxley had attacked Omega and Jericho at Double or Nothing. Omega returned the favor and added more fuel to the fire to the match that was going to be going down at All Out in August. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the good that was AEW Fighter Fest. So we are going to take a little quick break, listen to one of our sponsors, and then we are going to get into the bad. And I'm going to say very bad. That was AEW Fighter Fest. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the good, the bad, and the ugly. That was AEW Fighter Fest episode 81 of the Young Lions Perspective. And now we are getting into the bad. 
That was AEW Fighter Fest. And starting off immediately, if two-thirds of the pre-show and the first half of the main card aren't up to par, the quality of the show goes down dramatically, and so does my grade for the show overall. I'll get more into one of the matches in the ugly, because that... Oh my god. And when and if you watch the show last night, you'll know exactly which match I was talking about. But with starting with the pre-show, the pre-show itself, the buy-in. If I'm a fan, and I will explain this more in the ugly portion of the podcast. When I'm watching if you're if I'm a person who's never heard of AEW and a friend, you know, it's you know, tells me, yo, dude, gotcha got this product AEW all this stuff, man, this is going to be, a, you know, they're having a show for free on Saturday. I'd be like, oh, you know, if I'm, I'm still a professional wrestling fan, you know, hey, you know, let me know, oh, really, new promotion, Cody Rhodes and all that. Just, I'll check it out. And I watch the buy-in, and I see the triple threat tag match, and I'm like, oh, shit, that was cool. I wonder what else we're going to do for this. And then I see Allie versus Leva Bates. And I'll explain that a little bit later on. And then I see the Alex Jabaley Michael Nakazawa match. If I'm a person who's never heard of AEW before, this is my first time watching it. I may, if I'm just a person never never hearing about the product, never hearing about you know AEW at all, I've heard the other names and stuff. I would be hard pressed to actually want to watch the main card. Make me personally, if I never heard about AEW and this is my first time watching it, I'd probably be like, okay. I kind of have an idea, you know, professional wrestling, you know, not every match is going to be on point. Not every match is going to be a five-star match. But the the, la- the second and third match on the pre-show really didn't do AEW any favors whatsoever in terms of getting people to actually check out Fighter Fest. If, if the, all they saw was that first hour or so, and... They immediately were asked, gun to their head, would you watch the main card based off that hour alone? I'd be shocked if a good majority of people said I would watch the main card based off of what I saw at the pre-show. I would watch the main card, but I'd hope that it would be better than what I had seen in that buy-in show. And I'm being dead serious. Because that, that, that Ali Bates versus Leva, Ali versus Leva Bates segment, that was pretty, I thought it was okay. It really wasn't all that special. I mean, yeah, Ali got the victory, but the match itself was, was kind of bad. And like I said, I'll explain that more um, later on. But that, and then the Alex Jabaley, Michael Nagazawa match, I will say, that's going to be your ugly, by the way. And I'll explain more about that once we get to that portion of the podcast. But the first half of the main card, up until the Fatal 4-Way, was all right. It was decent. It wasn't really anything to write home about. It wasn't really anything to, you know, you know Christopher Daniels and SEMA, that was all right. The triple threat match, I'll get, women's match, I'll get into in a second. But if you're trying to put your best foot forward... You want to have at least, you know, something a little bit better than what they brought to the table on Saturday night. Not every show is going to be good. We know this. We all know this. Look at what WWE's main roster's doing. 
But that was not up to par. Ali Leva Bates was not up to par. Jabali Nakazawa definitely was not anywhere close. Christopher Daniels and Seema was all right. And getting into the triple, women's triple threat match between Riho, Rio, um, Yuka, and Nyla Rose. Although Rio gaining the victory was a shock. The women's triple threat match was missing a little something. You know what I mean? I felt like it was just missing like an interference or just a distraction. Kind of, you know, when we look back at the women's match at Double or Nothing between Kylie Ray, Britt Baker, and Nyla Rose, and then they added Awesome Kong into the mix, I was hoping that Kong and Nyla... <clears throat> I thought Kong was going to show up. That's what I felt. I thought Kong was going to show up and either attack her or at least distract her. And either Yuka or Rio was going to get the victory off of that. Something like that. Just a little something more to the dish. You know what I mean? It was just missing that little something. The match itself was alright. I'm not going to lie. The match itself was alright. It was decent. It did what it needed to do. And Rio getting the victory was definitely a shock. I was shocked by the fact that she got the pin. I was going. I was actually going for you. I was actually going for Yuka in the match. But and and the, and the, and the kind of the rivalry between Rio and Yuka starting to build. I I, I did like that. But. It just really didn't hit the mark as well as I thought it was going to. I know they were gunning for a bullseye, and they got a seven, a six or a seven out of trying to get the bullseye. It was just missing an extra little little ingredient in that matchup. And that kind of made the match seem a little bit dull at times. Yes, there were some spots that were actually good, but... It was just missing that last little piece, that last little ingredient. And that could have made the match just that much better. Now, I'm all for the librarian gimmick with Leva Bates and Peter Avalon. But man, did they miss their mark on Saturday night. Leva Bates comes out no, being the little librarian that she is, and I know there's a lot of dudes out there who think she's very attractive. She's cute. You know. Out and then Peter Avalon is there underneath whatever tent they had or some shit, and they're shushing each other and all this stupidity and all that. But the crowd didn't look like as if they were very interested in the gimmick at all. Oh, they were a little bit, you know, they were a little bit interested in the gimmick, but Other than that, it just really, it just really didn't do it for me. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was, I'm hoping that this, that the librarian's gimmick starts building and has, starts gaining its legs, starts gaining traction. But right now, I, I'm really not feeling it. I'm really not feeling this gimmick. You know, 
I understand, you know, the Young Bucks picked Peter Avalon, Cody picked Leva Bates to be the librarian, you know, and they have two librarians. Peter Avalon did not help in helping um, Leva win her match against Allie. That really didn't help matters at all. It just, it just didn't do what it was supposed to do. And like I said, I, I want every person on that roster to succeed. But that crowd was not like you could like if you go back to the match itself and you watch that promo by Leva and Peter Avalon cut, you could you could tell that the crowd was very disinterested in the product and what they were bringing to the table. I hope over the next you know weeks and months the the gimmick starts gaining traction. And, you know, it's more than just, you know, Leva and Peter, you know, talking about, you know, reading some books and shushing the crowd. I hope I'm hoping that, you know, Leva and Peter Pierre Avalon start beating people upside the head with the books and start getting victories off of that, becoming heels in a sense and getting more, you know, reaction from the crowd because they honestly got next to nothing from the from the Florida crowd on Saturday. And that can hurt a gimmick. If the crowd isn't into it, it does hurt. Now, like I said, hopefully they start getting into a little bit more heelish tactics. That helps them win matches. You know, Avalon not being a dumbass and distracting Leva. But it just didn't really do it for me at all on Saturday. Not one bit. And... Hopefully it does get better. Hopefully they do build on, you know, what they've got going here. But they should just charge that to the game, throw that one in the trash, go back to the drawing board and actually work on this gimmick and making it better for themselves and what they're trying to do with the with the gimmick itself. Oh, and uh, last bit. And trust me, the match between Allie and Leva Bates didn't do us any favors favors either. That match was... I don't know. I don't know what that was. I, I mean, I know they put their best foot forward in the matchup. It was... It had its moments. You know, Allie getting her a little bit, a little bit of revenge, stomping out the finger of uh, Leva Bates. You know, that was a good moment in the match. Just the match, it was it kind of it kind of looked like uh it kind of was the equivalent of a six man, woman's six women's tag six woman tag team matchup that they used that they used to do uh between like Bailey Sasha Banks and Natalia versus the Riot Squad for like seventeen weeks in a row. Now I mean that's what it felt like. It felt like watching that. That was my bathroom break match of the night. Got it out of the way. Just. Hopefully, when we get to fight for the fallen and Allie takes on Brandy Rhodes, hopefully these two work together better, and we get a better match out of these two than we saw with Allie taking on Leva Bates. Christopher Daniels versus Seema was a decent way to open the show, but I'm sure they could have placed a better match in this position. I alluded to this earlier on in the good that was AEW Fighter Fest. 
And the match, and I honestly would have put the triple threat tag match in place of Christopher Daniels versus Seema. I would have switched those two. I understand you're trying to get the buy-in to, you know, to get fans hyped up. But with the, with the implications this tag match had, with the opportunity to go on to fight for a first round bye in the AEW Tag Team Championship Tournament, I think that would have been a very hot way to start off Fighter Fest. I thought that would have been the proper way to start off AEW Fighter Fest because with Christopher Daniels and Seema, there really wasn't anything on the line. There was it was just a match that was made. That's not to say the match wasn't bad. It wasn't bad by any means. I just felt that the, the this match and the triple threat tag team match could have been switched. And Daniels and Seema could have started off the buy-in hot. You know, get the Florida crowd going with the buy-in matchups. You could have got a little bit more time. You could have done a couple more things. Like I said, the match was okay. It was okay. It was an okay way to start off the show. But... I think that triple threat tag match would have been a, would have been better suited on the main card given the implications that it had. You know, I think, and, and plus, it, it probably, and for those who were going to watch it on, anyway on BR Live, that would have been that would have been a solid way to get me interested in the show. And maybe the first half of the show probably would have. In a sense, I think, personally, I would have given it a better grade than I am going to give it had this been on the show. Had this really... Had that tag match been in, been to open up the card. But what we got from that tag match to open the card up like that, that would have been absolutely insane. But I think why they did it is because that match went kind of long, about 15, 20 minutes or so. And I kind of figured they other matches in the car were going to go longer anyway. So that's probably why they didn't put that match in the main card. So I can get it from that aspect. But had they switched those two matches, I guarantee you the quality, the, the grade I, I would have been giving it would have been a lot better than what I'm going to give it for this show. The last point I have for the bad, that was AEW Fighter Fest. I wanted to see more Jimmy Havoc and Jungle Boy in that Fatal 4-Way match. And maybe some Luchasaurus as well. The Fatal 4-Way match, Fatal 4-way match was dope. I love the Fatal 4-Way match. That was a really cool match to watch. I enjoyed it. All four of those guys, you know, the reason... Of course, the reason they had this match was because NJF, during the promo at Double or Nothing, he got attacked by Havoc and Jungle Boy. Which led to the Fatal 4-Way match... On Saturday night. I would have really liked to see a little bit more. Havoc and Jungle Boy. In that matchup. I know the mo- most of the focus was on MJF and Hangman Page. With the winner facing Kip Sabian at. Fight for the Fallen. But I would have loved to see a little. A couple more spots from both guys. Especially for Jungle Boy. Who I've never. Really seen before. I know he's Luke Perry's son. That's that's main. That's one of the main things we know about him. But I really would have loved to see him 
both of them show out a little bit more in this match. Have a little bit more shine. Because, you know, you're trying... I, I know you're trying to get the... I know they're trying to get the roster, you know, they're trying to put, you know, faces and names and have everybody, you know, see what they bring to the table. But just adding a little bit more to that match, another, I'd say, four to five, four to six minutes in that matchup, just to get a couple more spots in with Havoc and Jungle Boy definitely would have helped this match. Um, it's definitely in my top three, for sure. I will tell you all that right now. Uh, match of the night. But... Actually, I lied. Um, <laughs> it's a toss-up between uh, Moxley and Janela and the Fatal 4-Way as to where, to if they're going to make it on there. So I'll figure that out as I'm going. But seeing, you know, the match itself, like I said, it was good. I enjoyed it for sure. Just, if they got a little bit more time to do a couple more spots and letting Havoc do a couple more things, let Jungle Boy do a couple more things, getting Luchasaurus involved at some point in the match, if they had, like, um, like I'm trying to think of, it was like, the big show, I forget who it was. I think it was Rey Mysterio was on top of uh, Big Show's legs, and they did that uh, that crazy uh, flying uh, crossbody off, off his shoulders. I would have loved to see that, because Luchasaurus is a tall motherfucker. Let's get that one thing out of the way right now. He is tall as shit. I would have loved to see some sort of spot like that with Jungle Boy. And I would have done it with... And I saw the one move that uh, Jungle Boy did. He did. I think he was going off of the turnbuckle on the outside when he was on the apron. And his feet clipped the turnbuckle. I would have I would have done it if I was producing it. I would have had all three men on the outside. MJF, Hangman Page, and Jimmy Havoc. I would have had Luchasaurus be in the ring... Jungle Boy goes onto his shoulders on, from the top of the turnbuckles, and he would have done like a frying a, a, a moonsault off of his shoulders onto those three. That would have been a dope spot instead of that turnbuckle spot where he clipped his feet on the turnbuckles. As you heard that, I heard that. I heard his feet clip hard, and that heard that was heard throughout the entire arena on Saturday night. I thought that would have been a that would have been a dope spot and a and a spot that people would have remembered. You know, especially for those who have never really heard of Jungle Boy before, that alone would have kept me, that alone, the entrance was, like I said, his entrance was dope. He was on Luchasaurus' shoulders. That was really cool. But that, if they did that spot, as opposed to that turnbuckle spot, I would have, A, marked out, and B, excuse me, I would have loved that moment even more, and I definitely would have easily put them in the top three. Instead of me having to try to figure out what match between Janela Moxley and the Fatal 4-Way is going to be in the top three for the night. So that is the bad that was AEW's Fighter Fest. Not a lot of points there, but they are they are major points to be talked about. I'm sure there's more that I missed, and if I did miss it, uh, if you do listen to this podcast, let me know on my uh, social media, and I'll give you guys at the end of the show. We're going to take a little quick break. And then we're going to get right into the ugly. That was AEW Fighter Fest. And there's a reason I didn't talk about this match throughout the entire show. I'm going to get right into that. Stay tuned. To close out this episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly... That was AEW Fighter Fest. 
I'm all for comedic value in professional wrestling. But what Alex Jabaley and Michael Nakazawa did on Saturday night was no laughing matter. It was quite embarrassing to say the least. And if I were someone watching AEW for the first time, I would be concerned about the rest of the show entirely. Now, for those of you who don't know, at um, I think it was uh, All In last year, Alex Jabaley was also in a match. That was actually better than this match. This match was god-awful. God-fucking-awful. Just from the beginning of it, it was just... Excuse me. It was just embarrassing to watch. Even my mom was watching the match with me. And she was pretty much saying, what the fuck is this shit? And she rarely watches wrestling. But when she saw this particular match, and that was the only match she pretty much saw, as unfortunate as it was, she was just as embarrassed as I was to watch this match. The baby oil was whatever. The thong... The, just every bit about this match was absolutely fucking dreadful. It was just fucking disgusting. It was just, if there was a worst match of the year list I would do, that would probably be number one right the fuck now. There's no other way to describe this as embarrassing. No other way to describe it. I mean, you can go down the list. Shitty. Dreadful. God-awful. Painful. Stressful. Face-palming. Beyond belief. No replay value whatsoever. Disgusting. I mean, I mean, seriously. I'm, I know, and I saw a lot of people on the, my, my timeline on Twitter, they were just shitting all over this. Thinking, what the hell kind of shit was that? That was, I mean, like I said, if that. If that, if that alone got people to not watch the product, or at least maybe reconsider watching the show, I would not be mad at all. I mean, as a, as a podcaster, as a pro wrestling fan, that was something that I could have done without. And having the, 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 the head, the, ex- the head executive of this whole convention, which is where they were. I get you want to be a part of the show. But seriously, in that capacity, 
maybe that should be his last match. Ever. Like, ever in history. Michael Nakazawa, that was literally his first, uh, the first time I saw him wrestle, and I was just not impressed. The thong, using it, and then using it on the ref's face, and then using it on Jabali's face. Your balls was in that, man! That's the way you get a victory, is using that thong and putting it on, that was... I hope that at least at five for the fallen, we don't get this kind of match that they focus more so on the wrestling and not comedy. I I'm all for comedy. I'm all for a comedy in my wrestling shows if it's done right. R Truth and Drake Maverick they do it right. They've done that right. Although I hate twenty four seven title for everything that it stands for, the comedy gold these two produce with each other is fucking hilarious, and I love that shit. But what they, what Jabali and Nakazawa did on Saturday night was fucking was was beyond my train of thought. I lost IQ points. I wanted to throw shit. I was just I literally for three quarters of that match, I hung my head down in disbelief. That was atrocious. I hope I never see. And I see. I I really hope I never see Alex Jubaley wrestle ever again. I know he's not a wrestler; he's an amateur. The match was the match was just wrong. It was just bad. It was just so bad. It was supposed to be a hardcore match, and they did a little bit of hardcore, but it was just a glorified a glorified shit show. That's what it honestly was—a glorified shit show that was a waste of my fucking time. That literally took the pre-show down to just god-awful levels. And if you didn't want to watch the main car because of it, I would have been perfectly fine with you doing so. That was a tragedy. A fucking tragedy. And I hope we never see that kind of match ever again. I don't want to see a Michael Nakazawa match ever again because of that. I don't. I hope we never see that again. I hope we never... I, I, I mean, I know he's all elite, but I pray they never do that kind of match ever again. Because that was just god-awful. Disturbing. Just, just all types of wrong on so many fucking levels. Now that we got all of that out of the way, we can start handing out awards for AEW Fighter Fest. This is partly, this is like my favorite part of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let us begin, let's just get the worst match of the night out of the way. Michael Nakazawa and Alex Jubaley was the worst match on, on the night. That was a terrible match. And as I explained just a little while ago, that's why it was worst match of the night. Going into... The top three matches of the night. Number three. I'm going to go. I I said earlier that it was a toss-up between the Fatal 4-Way and the Joey Janela-John Moxley match. I'm going to give John Moxley and Joey Janela's unsanctioned match the number three spot. I don't like to do ties. Don't like to do it at all, but it was a very solid way to end the night at Fighter Fest, especially with what happened after the match with 
uh, Omega attacking Moxley. I thought that was a really, really good way to end the night. It was a crazy match. Just everything about it was really cool, and they did their numbers, and they hit their numbers completely. They showed up and show out. It was everything I thought it would be. It was just a great way to end the night for AEW Fighter Fest. Number two, I'm going to give it to Cody Rhodes and Darby Allen. Their time limit draw. Just the fact that they had Allen go the full 20 minutes with Cody Rhodes. And the what he did during that match, the way he put his body on the line, what happened after the match with Sean Spears hitting him with the chair, the chair shot to Cody. He became a household name to the rest of the world on Saturday night with that matchup. And that that basic reason alone is where it's why it's where it's at at number two. I loved every bit of that. It was fucking amazing to see the back and forth between these two. I thought it was going to be a straight up Cody Rhodes victory, giving him momentum towards the tag match. But they really, really, they really produced this very well. It was a well thought out match. The body bag spot was fucking epic with the disaster kick. That was awesome. I loved it. I loved every bit of it, and it was well fucking done. And I hope Darby... I can't wait to see more of Darby Allen. That's what I really got out of it. I can't wait to see what Darby Allen does next. I hope they put him in an all-out card. I really do, because I think after that match, I think he he earned that. I really do think he earned that and earned his spot to be an all-out in August. And it should, be, it should be easily obvious what my match of the night will be. The six-man tag between the Elite and the Lucha Bros and Laredo Kid. This, that, like I said earlier on the good, that was AEW Fighter Fest. From beginning to end, everything about this match was fucking spot on. The beginning of the match where, in the beginning of the match, during their entrances, the Ryu and Ken costumes... Kenny coming out as Akuma. That, of course, in the gaming world, Street Fighter is the shit. I love Street Fighter. And that was fucking just perfect with how they actually came across with that. That was fucking awesome. I thought that was great. Um, the match itself was amazing. Everybody in that match hit their numbers. Everybody had the moment to shine in that match. From beginning to end, that was, it was, that was, for what it was worth, that was match of the night. The crowd was into it from beginning to end. The crowd was popping for pretty much everything in that match. And it definitely captivated what... It captivated the crowd. It kept the crowd invested. I was happy with it. I watched it twice. That's how good this match was. I watched it twice. Beginning to end. And I was... Seriously, if you did not watch this match... If you did not watch Fighter Fest at all, I would strongly suggest you watch those three matches. Those three matches alone easily made the night. I loved it. I loved that match. And you can never go wrong with these six men. Hell, hell, even if it was another person besides Laredo Kid in that match, that match would have easily still been match of the night without question. I fucking loved that match. My MVP of the night. I usually don't like to do ties. I don't like to hand out co-MVP awards. But this 
if this this portion of the program, this card, I couldn't choose between two. So for the first time in doing the good, the bad, and the ugly and handing out my awards, I'm giving the co-MVP award to MJF and Darby Allen. Both of them displayed great performances in their matches. The promo MJ, you could easily make a case for MJF being, you know, the MVP of the night with his promos. But I think Darby Allen's performance against and, and even what he's even his video package on the Road to Fighter Fest episode two got me intrigued for what he was going to do and what he gave us on Saturday night. I can't choose between the two. They both put on spectacular performances. They both did their job. They got the crowd either pissed off at them or hyped for them. With Darby Allen, they wanted five more minutes of Rhodes versus Allen. That's how good a performance he had. So I'm handing my co-MVP award out to Darby Allen and MJF. But what matters most is the grade for the show. If you take out literally the first half and two-thirds of the pre-show, this was a solid A-minus show. Solid A-minus show. If you take out Daniels Versima, the women's triple threat, and you take out two, and you take out the Ali and Leva Bates match and the Jabali Nakazawa disaster, that's an A-minus show. Hands down. But that's not how we grade here. We grade on everything. And sent, and like I stated in the bad that was AEW Fighter Fest. It dramatically brought the grade down. And my final grade for AEW Fighter Fest, albeit a good show, it gets a C-plus from yours truly. Just based off what I saw from the pre-show and the and those two, and at least those two matches, the Christopher Daniels-Sema and the Women's Triple Threat match. Had any of those matches been a little bit better, it easily would have gotten into B minus territory for sure. At least B minus. But I think for this show, C plus is a proper grade to get it. If you have any, if you think I'm wrong, I'll let you know where to hit me up on my social media at the end of the show. But that's the grade I'm going to give it. Albeit a good show, still deserves a C plus. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the good, the bad, and the ugly that was AEW Fighter Fest. We're going to take one quick last break, and then we're going to talk about, of course, the closing segment and get you hyped and ready for episode 82 of the Young Lions Perspective. We'll be right back. Well, guys, that's going to be it for episode 82 of the Young Lions perspective, the good, the bad, and the ugly that was AEW Fighter Fest. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I hope you guys enjoy your day, your night, your afternoon, your evening, wherever you may be, wherever you are in the world. Thank you guys so much for checking out this episode of the podcast. You already know, I greatly and truly appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, do not hesitate to share this episode across all your social media platforms, your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, your Tinder, your Bumbler, your Bumble, your Tumblr, whatever social media you got, share this episode across your social media and let the people know that the Young Lions perspective is 
especially on the roads, the biggest professional wrestling day of the year, that we are here to stay. Now, guys, I also encourage you to check out epi- uh, episode three of the Outside the Ropes podcast, of course, which is a subset of the Young Lions perspective. I do encourage you to check out that episode, the Sonny Arvado interview. I put a lot of effort into that. And I hope you guys do enjoy that. And if you did, tell a friend to tell a friend to check out this uh, episode. I greatly truly appreciate if you do. If you enjoyed this episode and you don't happen to have the Anchor app, but you still want to check out this episode or any of the other 80 episodes of the Young Lions perspective, including four episodes of The Secret Files and now three episodes of Outside the Ropes, but you don't have the Anchor app, well... You can still check it, check out the episode across eight other platforms. That includes, of course, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and of course, you know it and you love it, that good old Spotify fam. Search for the Young Lions Perspective across all nine platforms and you should have no problem finding it whatsoever. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's going on with the Young Lions Perspective, when I'm doing live tweeting, any breaking news that I may put out on my social media... You can follow me on Twitter at Suede Senator WWI. I do live tweeting for mostly SmackDown Live, NXT, NXT UK, AEW, any WWE live pay-per-views, any AEW live pay-per-views. And if still, I have nothing else to do at 5 o'clock in the morning, any New Japan pay-per-views as well. If you want to you want to stay up to date with anything I do on Instagram, that's which is where I do most of my breaking news and talk about certain things about the world of professional wrestling, you can follow me there. At young underscore lions underscore perspective. Follow me on both of those platforms to stay up to date with everything that's going on with the YLP podcast. Episode 82 will come to you this weekend. Unless I got something going on and all that stuff. But barring anything else, episode 82 will be going down this weekend. Uh, your 4th of July weekend, of course. And I hope you guys have a safe and healthy 4th of July weekend. I will be talking about NXT and NXT UK Review. Of course, last week I didn't do an NXT or NXT UK review due to the fact that I was doing the interview with Sonny Arvado and his book, Instagods. And I definitely want you guys to go check that book out as well. A fantastic read, and it's one hell of a classic that he's got on his hands. Until this weekend, guys, for episode 82 of The Young Lions Perspective, again, have a safe and healthy 4th of July weekend. If you are traveling, be safe out there. I know usually 4th of July weekend is one of the busiest traveling times of the year without question. So be safe, be healthy, be responsible. You don't want to spend a weekend in a jail cell knowing that July 8th you will have to talk to the judge about your charges and doing dumb shit. Until next time, guys, for episode 82, enjoy your day. And I'll see you next time. See you.